BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on The Science Revolution, Vien Trong with Tom Steyer's Climate Justice joins the show with a vision for a green, red, and blue climate new deal. That vision includes Native Americans, a blue new deal for our threatened oceans, and a green new deal for our coastal communities. Dr. Michael Greger joins us. Have you gained a few COVID pounds in his new How Not to Diet cookbook? Dr. Greger tells how you can eat your way to a healthy, sustainable weight with plant-based meals. Terry Mills, president of the National Nursing Network and 2019 Oregon Nurse of the Year, drops by on why a national nurse for public health is important. Plus, Laura Packard, the founder of Healthcare Voices, explains open enrollment under the ACA to help the 16-plus million uninsured Americans get themselves enrolled. Stay tuned. So if you've ever had any interaction, consequential interaction with our healthcare system, particularly if you've been hospitalized, but even, even in the doctor's office, you've probably figured out that in many ways nurses are more important than doctors. I find it fascinating that we have a Surgeon General, we don't have a national nurse. Terry Mills is the president of the National Nursing Network and the 2019 Oregon Nurse of the Year. Nationalnurse.org is the campaign to make this happen. And I'm very happy that Terry is back with us. Her Twitter handle, by the way, is uh, Nurse Terry, T-E-R-I-A. Terry, welcome back to the program. Why do we need a national nurse from a public health perspective? So the National Nurse Act is really intended to guide the delivery of prevention bringing the unique perspective of nursing to the promotion of health in a way, really, that the public has never seen before. And when we first started this campaign a while back, as you know, we were looking at health conditions like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, opioid addiction, et cetera, things that still exist today but that we're not hearing as much about. And all of these are preventable conditions. And we've learned through the years that really, according to the CDC's website, 90% of the nation's $3.5 trillion in annual health care expenditures are for people with these chronic conditions. So when we look at nurses, who, by the way, are 4 million strong in our country, health promotion and prevention is really the cornerstone of every nurse's practice. And even more importantly, we're viewed by the public as those credible messengers. Um, The Gallup poll has voted 18 years in a row that nurses are the most trusted and ethical profession. But like you mentioned, there's still no single recognized public health nursing leader to really provide accurate education and guidance and reassurance for both the health professionals and the public. So now, fast forward to 2020, which happens to be the year of the nurse and the midwife. And concurrently, we are facing one of the most serious, challenging healthcare crises in our lifetime with COVID-19. And I know that your listeners probably have experienced some of the fear that even I myself have felt during this time. 
and it's really clear that we can do more. Health care professionals and the public are demanding accurate and timely information from a credible and trusted source. And nurses really need and deserve answers to our questions. We need PPE. We need more testing. We definitely need to bolster staffing so that we can really provide the safe care that's necessary for ourselves and our patients. And you have probably heard about vaccines. We're hearing more and more about them, and they are a source of hope. But what is missing right now is a national vaccine educational campaign, and nurses must be part of that equation, especially because Americans have such poor health literacy, which means they really can't understand just basic health information, like how to read their medication bottle. So that's a little bit of, of the background about um, the need for this. So where is the legislation at? I, I, the last time we talked Great. was, uh, I think, prior to the new Congress. You know, there was a bill up and it had support broadly from Democrats, but it was not on fire at all. Where are we at now? And there's going to be a brand new legislative session starting in January. So all legislation has to be rebooted. Where are we going with that? That's right. Good. Okay, so first let me talk to you about the bill itself. We have really been mobilized behind the National Nurse Act of 2019 and Senate Bill 696. And the beauty of this bill is it does not create a new position. That's really important for your listeners to know. So because of that, we have found out through the Congressional Budget Office that to do this, what we're asking for is to designate the chief nurse officer of the U.S. Public Health Service to be the national nurse for public health. This nurse works right alongside the Surgeon General. Her current duties would all be retained in the bill, but very few nurses, and especially the public, realize that this position exists. And we really want to make it easy and logical for Americans to recognize that this is a great resource for public health information. And so it's very pragmatic and easy to implement. We have gained a lot of support in Congress. Um, H.R. 1597 has 290 co-sponsors. That includes 72 Republicans. It's one of the most bipartisan bills in the United States Congress. It also has an identical companion bill, Senate Bill 696, which um, is co-led by Senators Merkley and Capito with 27 co-sponsors. Not only that, but there's 114 endorsing organizations. And we really believe that the coronavirus epidemic should have been the catalyst that passed this legislation this session, but unfortunately it did not. What's the plan going forward here? We feel that this is something that needs to happen immediately because of the COVID-19 crisis, and especially Mm -hmm. because we really need to be able to inspire the nurses, the 4 million nurses, to become engaged in the vaccination program that needs to be put forward nationally. And so what Mm -hmm. we'd like to see is we would like to see President-elect Biden, when he's addressing our national health care crisis, proclaim the chief nurse officer of the public health service as the national nurse for public health. And currently that nurse would be Rear Admiral Aisha Nix. She is the chief nurse. 
she leads 4,500 commissioned corps and civilian nurses, and they are already working to reduce health disparities and promote health. Why does this make so much sense? Because nurses are in every single community. Like you said, everybody's encountered a nurse in their life, and we are trusted. And when we talk, the public listens to us. We know how to translate all that confusing medical language into things, messages that patients and families can truly understand. And when nurses are involved, they really promote positive patient outcomes. We have the experience, we have the knowledge. What we're missing is we need that leadership, we need that direction. So that's why we just feel this, um, we feel the fierce urgency of now to get this done. So there's a chance that this could pass in this Congress and be signed into law by Trump? No, no. I do okay, not. So, I think this so we is so, dead because we've already heard that the House of Representatives is thinking about leaving next week. December 11th would be the last day. So, right. so and everybody's focused on the stimulus. Yeah, I get that. Exactly. So this needs to be on the legislative agenda for next year. So let me just say right now, as we get into the next year and things settle down a little bit and, and some regular order seems to return to the country, let's talk again, Terry, on this program, and you can give us an update on how it's going and what people can do. Okay, I'm really hoping people will contact President-elect Biden's transition team and let him know that this is something that he can do right now of the country, which would be great. 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 You've got it. Terry Mills, nationalnurse.org. Thank you, Terry. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Vien Trong, who uh, advises lawmakers, universities, foundations, and organizations on developing inclusive workforces, sustainable economies, and equitable environmental policies, and directs the climate justice efforts for the Tom Steyer Pack in addition to supporting the climate efforts of the California Business and Jobs Recovery Task Force, and as I mentioned, a speaker at the Bioneers Conference. Vien, welcome back to the program. It's, it's been a while. I'm curious where you think we are at right now in terms of where we go with American democracy and, and the climate crisis, all these things that we're facing. Hi, Tom. It's good to hear from you again. It's good to hear your voice. What a big question, you know, where we are with climate change and our democracy. You know, the last four years has really taken us, not only paused our progress towards climate solutions, but really taken us dramatically backwards. We know, of course, that President Trump had deregulated the United States. He has ended and paused over 100 regulations to protect air and water for families across the country. And now we have a new president that's going to come into office in January, and hopefully he's going to not only get us back on track, but accelerate our progress, get us back into the Paris Climate Agreement, and build back America better than ever. Yeah, one hopes. One hopes. We have such a big challenge. You're directing the climate justice efforts for Tom Steyer's PAC. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, Tom has been, you know, of course, he ran for president, leading with the climate justice platform across the platform, across all the candidates. He was the front runner and the leader on making sure we're not only addressing climate solutions, but addressing the justice issues in America. And he's continuing to do that. He was a surrogate for President-elect Biden and now continuing to help do the work in the grassroots level, at the grass tops level working to bring businesses together and forward and making sure that we're always holding justice at the center. 
And uh, I've been really proud to help him as a friend and having helped him write some of his policies. Yeah, he's, he's a, he seems like a very decent guy. He's been on our program a, a couple of times. I'm curious, or let me rephrase that. I'm guessing that many of our listeners right now, when you say climate justice, you know, it sounds like a political buzzword as opposed to a specific reality. Probably a lot of people don't understand what those two words together, that phrase, actually means. You know, at the level of policy, at the level of, of the impact on individuals, at the level of, hey, uh, pay attention to this, this is going on, and then on the, you know, and then following through on that, and here's how we're going to solve that. Can you speak to what climate justice is, please, with a bit of a deep dive? Yeah, well, across this country, we have communities that are hit first and worst by pollution and toxicity. Just my family, for instance, we live by a busy road and highway. And because of our proximity to the pollution that we're surrounded by, we're projected to live 12 years less than a community or a family that's only seven miles away. And this is not just unique to my family. I mean, imagine what it means if you're raising kids and you're losing 12 years of life. No matter how many organic fruits and veggies are trying to pump into them, it's not going to change the fact that we have so many particulate matters, so many pollution spewing out of tailpipes. We have a groundwater contamination by industries, you know, down the street. This is not just us. 70% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a pollution spewing coal-fired power plant. You know, on average, one out of 28 people have asthma. In our community, one out of four has asthma. So justice means let's make sure that where we live does not determine how long we get to live and the quality of life that we get to have access to. Tell me if you think this is an overly simplistic analysis. It probably is. But basically, African-American communities, in particular minority communities more broadly, have, throughout the history of this country, been the people who have borne the brunt of most of the pollution. You know, if you look at Cancer Alley, where, you, you know, the prevailing winds go from the west to the east, and, uh, you know, you go downwind from Houston and all those refineries and Galveston and all that stuff, um, uh, in all the way to Louisiana, there's this strip that's maybe 30, 40 miles wide and maybe 200 miles long, um, where there's just explosive levels of cancer as a result of the, the emissions from these uh, refineries. And almost all of those communities are communities of color, mostly African-American. Mm -hmm. um, you look at uh, the cities that are still running coal-fired power plants, and they've got these giant mm -hmm. piles of coal ash, in many cases unprotected from the, from the elements, and downwind from them, almost without exception, all over the country, you find communities of color, principally African-American communities. This has been going on forever, and I don't mean mm -hmm. that literally, but it's been going on for a long time. And now that coastal communities are at risk, now that Miami is at risk and Miami Beach and up and down the East Coast at where you've got wealthy white people with fancy houses starting to freak out about this, suddenly it becomes an issue. How cynical is that analysis or how real? How should it inform us if it has any value as to how we move forward? Not just that, right? With San Francisco, we saw the sky stay black. You know, this year, it was the wildfires that was uh, oh, accelerated was by climate too. change. Yeah, and, and in Portland, it was just devastating. You know, this for a long time, we thought it was somebody else's problem. 
somebody else's backyard, somebody else's lungs, and now it's hit home and it's been it's personal. Look, you know, there's a Chinese proverb that says the best time for a solution for planting a tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is today. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for us now, we got to look forward. We got to realize that according to the UN, it projects we have 10 years left to 2030 before we can stop the worst of climate change. However, we have gotten here, however, we have finally internalized and understood the devastation and the urgency of the issue. It's time for us to start looking at how do we turn to each other and work together to really accelerate the progress that we can make around climate solutions. We're talking with Vien Trong. Her website is V-I-E-N-T-R-U-O-N-G.net, Vientrong.net. Twitter handle is Viendetta, V-I-E-N-D-E-T-T-A. That's kind of cool. Um, and uh, Vien, tell us about what you're going to be speaking about at uh, the Bioneers Conference. We're going to look at how do we make sure now that we're, um, we can focus our minds around solutions. For a long time, we've, there's, a, there's a sense that protesters are about whining. Now we're turning our, our eyes and our gaze towards winning. But what does winning really look like? How do we make sure now we're not being silent around bringing all communities to the table to make sure that we're getting the best of solutions for the best of what America can be? You know, now is the time where we we demand for us to no longer stay silent around the injustices that we're seeing in Portland, in San Francisco, in Miami, in Flint, you know, in Detroit. How do we begin to look at addressing these issues, whether it's on water or air or soils? How do we begin to come together to really look at creating some real solutions? So how do we do that? I think it's about making sure we're plugging in on democracy, making sure we're looking at our politics, having leaders that represent us policy-wise, represents the communities not long neglected. Our private sector has to really step up to the table and really make sure we're addressing not only their shareholders, but also their stakeholders' values. Yeah, and the stakeholders being the people who live in the communities around them, the people who work for them, the people who buy their products, the people who once made their products, that kind of thing. You, me, everybody at the kitchen table, yes, exactly, the consumers and the shareholders as well. Yeah, we're all parts of this. Vien Trong, the website V-I-E-N-T-R-U-O-N-G.net, Vientrong.net. Vendetta is Vien's Twitter handle. Vien, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Tom, nice, thank nice you so much. My thank pleasure. You. My pleasure. Anytime. Got a lot of work to do. Sponsoring the interview this week is... It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
On the line with us is Dr. Michael Greger. For years, I've been talking about him and his website, nutritionfacts.org, one of my absolute favorite websites on the entire internet, the source of a lot of information that Louise and I have used in our own personal lives with regard to nutrition and diet and things like that. And he's got a new book out, and I wanted to get him on and talk about it. He is a physician, author, internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. His previous book, How Not to Die and How Not to Diet, and the How Not to Die Cookbook. And he has a new book out, the How Not to Diet Cookbook. Dr. Gregor, welcome back to the program. It's been too long. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you. Tell us about your book. Oh, well, you know, uh, so much nutritional noise and nonsense these days. I just wanted to, there to finally be an evidence-based diet book. And I cite literally thousands of studies digging up every possible tip, trick, tweak, technique proven to accelerate the loss of body fat to give people every possible advantage. Basically, build the optimal weight loss solution from the ground up. So that was how not to diet. But I wanted to make a practical guide to put the mountain of evidence into practice. And so, hence, the new cookbook out today, the How Not to Diet Cookbook. Diets don't work by definition because going on a diet implies that at some point you're going to go off the diet. Permanent weight loss requires permanent dietary change. Healthier habits just need to become a way of life. If it's going to be lifelong, you want it to lead to a long life. And thankfully, the single best diet proven for weight loss may just so happen to be the cheapest way to eat for the longest, healthiest life. And look, this is the time to start taking better care of ourselves. I mean, consider the underlying risk factors for COVID-19 severity and death. Obesity, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, all of which can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet and lifestyle. So for somebody who is thinking of trying a plant-based lifestyle, let's call this, rather than diet, where should a person begin? Well, if there were just three foods to add to one's diet, then I would encourage people to eat berries, the healthiest fruits, greens, the healthiest vegetables, and legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, some of the healthiest foods, all part of my daily dozen checklist of all the healthiest healthy foods. I encourage people to fit into their daily diet, part of a free app for iPhone, Android, Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen. In fact, if you toggle over to weight loss mode, there's also the 21 tweaks to accelerate weight loss that I talk about and how not to diet. And if there were just three things first to remove from one's diet, if you only had three, then uh, number one would be trans fats. Two would be uh, processed meat, bacon, ham, hot dogs, uh, you know, lunch meat, sausage. These are category one curse engines. We know they cause cancer in human beings. And also soda, liquid candy. We shouldn't be drinking our calories. So those are the uh, top three things to add, top three things to take away. And if we just did that, we'd be on the road towards better health. So for somebody who's eating the standard American diet, comparing that with somebody who goes on a plant-based diet, what is the difference in the rates? I mean, the number one and two killers before COVID came around, it became the number one killer in America, I think two weeks ago. But prior to that, and you point out the major risk factors for COVID are also all diet related, every single one of them. So for somebody who's on a standard American diet versus somebody who's been on a plant-based diet for a while, what are the differences in the rates of heart disease cardiovascular disease, the risk of stroke, the risk of heart attack, the risk of cancer. How real, how big are these differences? Every single year for the last century, from 1919 to 2019, the number one killer in the United States for both men and women, heart disease. But it wasn't 101 years ago because we had pandemic flu, and it may not be this year 
because of yet another pandemic. But when this pandemic is over, we will go back to killing ourselves with the standard American diet. According to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest study of disease risk factors in history funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the number one cause of death in these United States is the American diet. And there's only one diet ever proven to reverse the course, not just slow down, stop, but reverse heart disease is a diet centered around whole plant food. So like, if that's all a plant-based diet could do, reverse the number one killer, men and women, <laughs> shouldn't that kind of be the default diet to improve another one? And the fact that can also be so effective in preventing, arresting, reversing other leading killers like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure would seem to make the case for plant-based eating simply overwhelming. You know, back in the 19, uh, late 70s, early 1980s, I met Nathan Pritikin, and he was yeah. singing this song. And he was largely being trashed for it. My wife and I had started a community for abused kids up in New Hampshire that was entirely vegetarian, and we were getting wired into this whole network of people. And he was supporting what we were doing also, and vice versa. And we've been eating this way since the 60s, frankly, by and large. I mean, for a long time, we thought that cheese and eggs were just fine. And and you're one of the people who, who kind of woke me out of that one. But how is it that science knows now, I mean, you know, the Cleveland Clinic research and everything else. And how is it that we know for a fact that if you simply abandon animal products from your diet, you are going to live longer, you're not going to get heart disease, you're not going to get cancer, or you're less likely to get heart disease or cancer. And yet, physicians are not recommending this to their patients. It's not part of standard advice. I mean, what the hell is going on in this country? Well, look, I mean, the doctors have a severe nutrition deficiency in education. Most doctors just never taught about the impact healthy nutrition can have in the course of illness. So, look, they graduate without this powerful tool in their medical toolbox. Now, look, there's also institutional barriers, time constraints, lack of reimbursement. I mean, in general, doctors simply aren't paid for counseling patients on to take better care of themselves. And, of course, look, you know, drug companies also play a role in influencing medical education and practice. You know, but look, ask your doctor when's the last time they were taken out to dinner by big broccoli. It's probably been a while. Yeah, yeah. So how do we best wake up friends and neighbors? I'm assuming the starting point is to get them a copy of your book, The How Not to Diet Cookbook, right? It's all about sticking to the science, right? And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. they can go to uh, my website, nutritionfacts.org, free, nonprofit, science-based public service providing daily updates on the latest in nutrition research and via bite-sized videos and more than 2,000 health topics. We do videos and articles uploaded every day at nutritionfacts.org. Yeah, and i got to tell you, it's one of my absolute go-to spots. We've done segments on this show, you know, quoting you. Uh, we played clips of you on this program. <laughs> I, I hope that's okay with you. I've been a big oh fan God, for a please. long time. Dr. Michael Greger, his new book is The How Not to Diet Cookbook. His website is nutritionfacts.org. Check it out if you want to live longer and better. Dr. Greger, thanks again for dropping by. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.